back, everybody. That was the jaunty opening to our thriller horror episode dedicated to Valerie Harper. This is the Made for TV Mayhem show, and again, I'm Amanda Reyes. We've been gone for a while. Um, all of our schedules have been pretty crazy this summer, and a lot of stuff has happened, and we've just been really busy, but the show has been in our hearts and on our minds, and we've pushed this episode back a bit, and um, we're really, really happy to be here, so we're just going to dive right into it. Um, again, this is dedicated to Valerie Harper. We're covering two of her thrillers, uh, which you might not have guessed listening to that music. That was actually the end theme to People Across the Lake, which is the second film we're discussing. The first film we're talking about, though, is a straight up 1970s TV movie classic called Night Terror. Um, it's probably the first thing outside of Rhoda that I can remember seeing Valerie Harper in um, and I watched it endlessly as a kid. It seemed to rerun all the time on my local channel and I loved it. It scared the bejesus out of me and it still does to a point. I think it's really effective and it really works and one of the questions I may ask my co-hosts who we'll get to in a second is is this more like Duel or The Hitcher? I'm not sure because I get vibes from both. And, of course, it predates The Hitcher, but it, it kind of has a vibe to me about it. So maybe we'll discuss that a little later. But anyway, let me just get to my co-host who I have missed dearly. Um, let's start with Dan. Hey, Dan, what's up? I missed you, too. Aww. I heard so much, many great things you've been up to and such. It's, it's, been, it's been fantastic. Well, thanks. Uh, but I, I hadn't thought about The Hitcher when I was watching um, a Night Terror. Now it's all I'm thinking about. It's all I'm thinking. <laughs> Don't let it distract you, Dan, because we need oh, you. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. That happens. That happens. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm ready to discuss some about Valerie Harper movies. I, I, I hadn't seen either of these, so Ooh. I'm excited to talk about them. Yay, I'm excited to have you talk about them too. Um, Nate, how are you? I'm doing very, very well. I've actually been looking forward to these two very much because I love these movies. Yeah, they're pretty wonderful. That's a little spoilery on our parts, but um, well, I guess we'll find out what Dan thought of them in a little bit. But it was really great to pair these two together because they work together in a weird way. They're not really similar, but they're both thrillers, and I think that they're both obviously joined by the fact that I think Valerie Harper was really good in all different kinds of genres. And I think, and I talk about this all the time, actors are always using TV movies to sort of spread their wings and to kind of show us the different types of characters they can play. And I think Valerie Harper did a really good job of that in a bunch of different kinds of movies. And we'll talk about a couple of them um, probably tonight. But um, for now, it's just going to be all the scary stuff because that's kind of what we specialize in, although we do do other things. Um, so before we go into the synopsis of Night Terror, I just wanted to give you a little brief biography on Valerie Harper. Um, you know, when I first started writing this, I wanted to make it like this really in-depth, like thing but I feel like we all kind of know who she is and and it's better if we just sort of talk about her work as an actress especially in these two films and particularly in People Across the Lake because although I think they're both fairly well known I think that one is discussed less so so let me just give you the very basic nuts and bolts uh this is your life Valerie Harper so Valerie was born on August 22nd 1939 in New York matter of fact she just celebrated her 80th birthday last week um as of this recording and it was so great um and I celebrated on my Twitter with uh, lots of photos and stuff and people seem to be really into it, and that was great. I think we all love her so much. I don't know if anybody here knows, but she studied ballet as a youngster and was a dancer before she became an actress. She actually worked at Radio City Music Hall. She wasn't a rockette, but she did dance there, and she was only 16 years old. She danced in Broadway productions. She was actually in the Broadway production of Lil Abner, and she appeared in the movie in an uncredited role as one of the dancers. And she danced in um, other original productions, such as Wildcat, which starred Lucille Ball, which is pretty neat. And actually, she did a tribute to Lucille Ball later. You can watch it on 
on YouTube with B. Arthur and maybe Pam Dauber. That sounds really strange, right? Those three, but they do like a number together for Lucille Ball. So anyway, when she was making her way in New York, her uh, roommate was Arlene Golanka, who I think will come up in the show eventually because um, she's, of course, she's most famous for playing Millie Hutchins on the Andy Griffith Show, but she did a bunch of TV movies, including Secret Night Caller and a kind of a disaster movie called The Elevator that I really like with Don Stroud. So anyway, Valerie ended up joining the second city in Chicago, and that's where she met her first husband, who's Richard Shaw. So just a couple words about Richard Shaw. If you Google him, you'll totally recognize him if you watch television in the 70s. He was a comedian. But what I think is so fascinating about him is that he had a daughter named Wendy Shaw, and Wendy is the actor who replaced Tattoo on Fantasy Island. Do you remember that last season when it was like Mr. Belvedere and the lady tattoo and that's what? yeah that's Richard Charles daughter I don't know if you've got that far into Fantasy Island and no. that, that's Valerie Harper's stepdaughter which blows my mind every time I watch those episodes of um you don't remember Mr. Belvedere maybe Mr. Belvedere yeah they, there was all three of them it was Mr. Belvedere it took two people to replace tattoo oh, that wow. probably shocks nobody um so anyway uh, Valerie would end up co-writing an episode of Love American Style which I didn't know till the other day it was called Love and the Visitor she wrote it with her husband Richard Shaw and then she was in a she moved to LA I guess and where that's probably where she wrote the Love American Style episode and she was in a play and it just turned out that the casting agent for CBS who was looking for people for the Mary Tyler Moore show came in and thought that Riley Harper would be perfect to play a character named Rhoda um, and that's all she wrote uh, she would go on to become a household name an icon right um, and she kind of set the model for the quote unquote best friend and or second banana character on TV and of course she got her own spinoff which we'll talk about a little bit but so I made this little note to myself here it just says why does Rhoda rule well so for me the Mary Tyler Moore show was great it was obviously an ensemble with a lot of really amazing actors but it it was always about Rhoda for me. And um, I think that's because I read an interview with Valerie Harper where she said that one of the things that drew people to Rhoda was that she was always willing to say what everyone was thinking but too afraid to say themselves. So she gave an example like where Ted Baxter would say something rid ridiculously stupid as he often did and everybody would try to kind of soft shoe it and then she'd be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Ted. You know, and it, the audience loved it. They kind of liked that she was sort of, I don't know, if you call her the Greek chorus or whatever, she was us. And she had this really great self-deprecating sense of humor. And I think even though she was quite beautiful, the Rhoda's insecurities made her more relatable to us. She was very girl next door, somebody you could get a beer with, but also somebody that I think was exquisite too. And something that I liked about the spinoff TV show was that, so Rhoda, the TV series, if for anybody who hasn't watched it, it's really about the first couple seasons and really the first season. Um, and we could do a whole podcast episode about Rhoda and I'm not going to do that but but you know in the first couple seasons when she was courting Joe and then married him um, she was his equal so like Joe owned his own business she owned her own business it was called Windows by Rhoda it, it never felt like there was anybody had any kind of power over the other and I really like that about her so as the show progressed the writers wrote themselves kind of into a corner and they were like well she's married and she's happy so we don't know what to do with her which is to me says that the writing staff was shitty because there's lots they could have done with her. So what they did was they broke up 
Rhoda and Joe, and then they got rid of Joe, played by David Groh, who was wonderful, and then they had her get in Wacky Adventures as, like, the insecure single person again, and it just didn't work, because we all wanted to see her get married. As a matter of fact, we all wanted to see her get married so badly that 52 million people watched the episode where Rhoda married Joe. It was, at the time, I think the highest-rated thing that ever aired on TV, um, up until, I guess, the MASH finale and the Who Shot JR episodes. I think those might be the top three things to ever air. So anyway, she divorced her first husband, and she ended up marrying um, a man who was was actually her personal trainer. Uh, they met around 1980 when she went to him to get in shape for a movie called Chapter 2. And then he became her manager. So I didn't write his name down here, and I wish I had. I feel so bad about that because he's a really cool guy. He was actually a Broadway performer, too. He was a dancer, and he was in West Side Story and things like that. And then he became a personal trainer, and then he became a manager. Um, they're still married. They have a daughter, I believe. And so, you know, there was a stretch of time between um, the end of Rhoda in the late 1970s into the early 90s. Um, where Valerie worked really heavily in the TV movie world. So um, just between 1980 and 1986, she did six TV movies. She did something called Funny Games, uh, The Shadow Box, The Day the Loving Stop with Dennis Weaver, Feral for the People, which is pretty good, Don't Go to Sleep, of course, a classic, Invasion of Privacy, which is one of my favorite films of hers. I also wanted to mention that her first TV movie was um, a small role in Thursday's Game, which starred Gene Wilder and Bob Newhart. And then she did Night Drive. So this was only her second TV movie. So other TV movies that she did that came along were Death of a Cheerleader, of course, which you've covered on the show. She was in Perry Mason's Case of the Fatal Fashion, which she's amazing in. She's the victim, I think, and she's really, she just steamrolls over everybody in that episode. Um, she was in Stolen One Husband with Elliot Gould. She was in something called My Future Boyfriend. Of course, she was in the Marion Rhoda reunion movie, which um, a lot of people watched. It was one of the highest rated movies, I think, that season, but a lot of people were disappointed in. Um, I think it's really good. I don't think it's perfect, but it does a lot with ageism, um, especially in the Mary Tyler Moore trying to get back into the news world stuff. It's, I think it's kind of an important film. And then in the 1990s, of course, we know she did Valerie. Uh, and uh, for people who aren't familiar with that show, she did it for just a little short spurt of time and then she was fired from the show. And then it became the Hogan family. And Sandy Duncan replaced her as like the sister or something. I think they killed off Valerie Harper's character. So there was a huge lawsuit um, because of that. It got settled out of court. Um, and uh, the people who actually, uh, the network that made Valerie, actually hired her to do People Across the Lake during the lawsuit. Because at the time, she was suing Lorimar, um, NBC, and there was a third party. I think it was uh, Brandon Tartikoff from NBC, particularly. And then she dropped Tartikoff and NBC from the suit and just sued Laura Marr. And um, they actually gave her this part in Lake, which was kind of her coming back to television. Although she'd done a couple things sort of in the interim. Uh, she also does a lot of theater. Uh, that was a big love for her. She appeared in productions of Ovid's Metamorphosis and Julie Stein's Subways Are for Sleeping. Um, she played Tallulah Bankhead in something called Looped, uh, which sounds amazing. It was inspired by something that happened when Bankhead was looping dialogue for her horror movie, Die, Die, My Darling. And so what happened was they brought in this true story they brought into Lula Bankhead to do five minutes of sound and dialogue and it took her like eight hours to do it because she was so shit-faced and so somebody wrote a play about it Harper said that she really liked playing these larger-than-life characters. She also played Pearl S. Buck in a story about her life and Golda Meir, of course, in Golda. Um, she's an Emmy winner, of course. She won Emmys for playing Rhoda on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. She was nominated for um, a Golden Globe for Freebie and the Bean and again in Chapter 2. And she was nominated for a Tony for her portrayal of Tallulah Bankhead in that production I just talked about called Looped. 
And like I said, she just seems like one of us, despite all of that larger-than-life stuff that she does and her amazing career, where she's consistently worked for, like, the last however many decades. Even through that lawsuit, she managed to get work um, and never stopped. She's just our friend. That's how I see her. I see her as a great inspiration as a woman because she's overcome a lot. Also, I think she's stunning. And I don't know if anybody here remembers in Romeo and Michelle where they're like, I'm the Mary and you're the Rhoda. No, I'm the Mary, you're the Rhoda. And it seemed like so horrible to be the Rhoda. I'm totally the fucking Rhoda, man. And I'm into it. I'm into it. She's my girl. And so I'm really happy to be talking about this because Night Terror is the shit. And so is People Across the Lake. So let's just get started. Officer, officer, I'm almost done empty. We're going to get some gas. With only two interruptions, a young woman finds herself the target of a deranged killer in Night Terror. Oh, my God. Someone is trying to kill me, kid. He shot a police officer. I saw the whole thing. And the nightmare begins as Valerie Harper stars in Night Terror, Monday at 8 on Channel 5. So there were only two commercial interruptions? Yeah, that was a big deal when they aired it. I noticed that. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, because as I was watching it, I was trying to see where the... Uh, commercial breaks would have been and I, I just kept missing them and I thought I'm I'm am I not paying attention but no only two that's well, very cool. well this is the rerun I don't know how it originally aired oh. oh okay so this is about well this begins for the first 20-25 minutes we uh, follow two different uh, main people one is a uh, uh, veteran I, I presume a Vietnam vet uh, who uh, is in the desert and who we see um, he has a shotgun he has a car he has uh, a scar uh, running down like his throat and his chest, and he can't speak. And he has one of those "How are you?" things that you put up to your your throat. We we contrast him with uh, I believe it's the Turners, and uh, Valerie Harper plays Carol Turner, and she's married to I believe she's married to Walter, and they have two kids, uh, uh, Carolyn and. Buddy, I believe. I actually didn't take the kids' names down. I'm just looking at uh, into Merrill right here. And the thing about uh, their family is that Walter works for some sort of company where, like, every two years it's said they move. So they're in Phoenix. They're moving to Denver. And Vera and the two kids are going to take a plane to Denver today. Uh, Carol and Walter are going to have a second honeymoon night at a hotel. Uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be great. Then they're gonna fly out the next day, and everything is gonna be beautiful. And one of the things we see is that Carol is a bit sort of absent-minded, a bit ditzy, and um, and everyone knows it, including her husband. What are the movers doing with our Footlocker? I don't know. Well, I told them not to touch the luggage in the hallway. That's where I left the Footlocker. Garrett, didn't I? I'll handle it. Oh, no. You finish your coffee, Walt. I will handle it. I, I must have left it in the living room. With the other stuff, they have to go. Slow down. They're not going anywhere. I don't know how she survives. Picking up every two years. Moving an entire household from one city to another. Your sister survives because I'm organized. What well, is that the answer? Organized for both of us. That's the way she likes it. Casual misogyny at its finest. Yes. And... So uh, as we watch uh, the gentleman, the Vietnam vet who doesn't get a name, and I'm not going to tell you what he's kind of listed as because that might give it away. Um, he, we see him kind of going through a day. He's on the phone with someone who is basically saying, the goods had better be there tomorrow or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And, and he's, you know, he's a little 
well, I don't want to say he's freaked out, but obviously he's in a bad way. And then you see him at a diner um, engaging in some kind of low-level destruction of the diner. And just to show that this is kind of an antisocial, possibly unpleasant gentleman. And that's mixed in with Carol waiting at the hotel room for her husband to show up. Uh, He calls and says, hey, the guys I work with want to take me out somewhere or other and show me something. I don't mean to make that sound like a vague series of innuendos. I've forgotten exactly what it was they want to show him, but it's something work-related. So it's like, I'm sorry, I can't meet you. And she said, okay, well, tomorrow we'll do whatever it is we're doing. So she's going to relax. She calls Vera. They should be in Denver by now. And she learns that Buddy got sick and they're in the hospital. She tries to get in touch with her husband, but he's already gone off to do whatever it is he's doing. And so she decides, I don't know if it's quite the middle of the night yet, but she decides that she is going to drive. I think I want to say it's it's like 16 miles, 16 hours. I'm sorry, 16 hours from Phoenix to Denver. 16 miles from Phoenix to Denver. She only has to go 16 miles and she can't make it. She can't make it. They're huge. (laughs) They're giant miles. Um, uh, but, but she has to go 16 out the valet, basically at the hotel says it's a 16 hour drive straight through. And she says, and she kind of ignores him. So she takes off. It's the middle of the night. She's going to Denver and, and her, her, um, she literally, she's on E actually, she might be a little past E at this point. I forget. She's on ecstasy. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. She's on empty. And she's running on empty. And she tries to go to a gas station where there are these two jerks who won't help her because they're getting in a van with their girlfriends and going out to have a good time in Phoenix, whatever it is you do in Phoenix. I guess you go to you go to Mel's. Uh, was was yeah. Alice set in Phoenix? I forget. Uh, was it Phoenix um, or Tucson? So, oh, it was Phoenix, uh, maybe, yeah. Um, so uh, so she, she gets on the local interstate, the Interstate 17, which goes right up to Denver. And she's trying to find a place to, you know, she's checking, uh, you know, exit signs, any gas, that kind of thing. And she sees a very familiar looking, possibly we saw it in the opening scene, car go by, followed by a cop car with the lights on. She decides to pull up alongside the cop car as it's stopping this other car. You heard it in the promo and ask for help about gas. And all of a sudden, a shotgun barrel comes out of the window of the stop car. The cop is shot dead. After a moment of confusion with a spotlight coming out of the car with the shotgun guy in it, she takes off and he takes off after her. And I'm not going to go too in depth uh, uh, from this point on because it, it's it's basically they they spend the night into the morning. Uh, he chases her and they remembering that she has to get gas because she's almost completely out and he has to find her. But it's dark. And so it's not it's it's it can it's going to be tricky for both of them. So it becomes sort of a cat and mouse game, uh, it, kind of in the desert in that area on that interstate. As she's trying to keep away from this guy, and then a storm hits, and then there's a a drunk guy and another drunk guy, and it's just it's just crazy. And it's just, I'll, I'll stop it there. It's basically Valerie Harper trying to get away from a veteran who is killed a cop and now wants to kill her. Thank you. Okay, so real talk, guys. Richard Romanus. Who plays the killer? Hot or not? I I would say hot, right? That's my answer, Nate. Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) Okay. I just want to make sure that when I was a little kid, it wasn't weird that I was like, he's so hot. So, Dan, you hadn't seen this before, so tell us what you thought. Uh, I really liked it. My uh, my, my one thought is that I, I, I kept doing a weird thing as I was watching it that I kept thinking, oh, this is the TV movie version of Duel. Pause. Wait a minute. And so I'd have to correct myself. 
over and over again. It's a Valerie Harper is, is, is okay. I think the first 20 minutes or so when she's shown as being ditzy and, and goofy and she's knocking over orange juice and putting her coffee in the fridge. I get it. I, I think, I think they oversell that a lot. <laughs> Uh, to, uh, almost the, the thing is that once she actually gets out on the road, the last to me the last sort of thing she does that kind of made me roll my eyes a bit was pulling up alongside the cop on an interstate who has pulled over someone. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone do anything like that any at any time in human history. It's a really weird way to have her. I thought she was just going to like drive by and then a shot was going to go off. And then she was going to, like, hit her brakes. And then, like, because she hit her brakes, the killer's like, oh, crap, she saw me do that. And he goes off after her. But it's it's a, it's a kind of contrived. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because in my memory, I always thought it was a checkpoint. You know, like, oh, everybody sure. had to stop before just a general checkpoint. And then he was gun smuggling or whatever and got busted. And so that's mm -hmm. why he shot... The cop, mm. and it was only on this last time that, I, and I think I had that same thought where I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. He's been pulled somebody over, so he's busy, mm -hmm. and she's going to ask him for help." And I didn't. I, my mind had totally erased that. It's 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 an odd moment because they, they they spend much of the first twenty five minutes showing how like absent minded she, and I mean the first like 20 minutes and the final scene are the only sort of failings of the film for me once the shotgun goes off from that point up until the end of the uh the sort of action I think it's really good it's not it's not dual good Steven Spielberg is is a, is a much better director than is it Mr. Swackhammer yes the Mr. Yes. Swackhammer and Richard Matheson is clearly a better writer than the two guys who wrote this. However, I think they do a really nice job with it. Part of the, part of the tricky thing is that about 40 minutes of the, the chase is set at night. So you never kind of, it's never quite clearly defined where you are mm. in relation to everything else. So it's sort of like, now, wait a minute. It, how is the killer constantly find, I mean, finding her on on it she goes off and exit he finds her a little bit later he you know he happens to just be sitting there at one point and then like a half a mile away he sees her drive by oh, i love that it's part like, though i love that part it's nicely shot but it's all it's also one of those things like they they do have to um i, I think the thing with duel in that especially in the tv movie version where where there's even less of like what is what is our main character what is his life like uh where it's just one guy against this tanker truck i, I prefer that but this is doing something different like you said this is almost more of a hitcher um kind of thing i, I would say so i mean obviously valerie harper is fantastic and she's fun to watch and and if i had to watch anyone do that slightly lame Look at how ditzy I am stuff in the first 15, 20 minutes. I'd rather it be her than someone else because I feel like she's going to be kicking ass shortly, uh, which, which she does. And um, I really love – I don't know why I love – I love that scene at the, uh, the gas station where she's trying to get gas because it's just like she's there. Oh, she has to get a key. Oh, she has to break into here. Oh, where's the key? Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. And it's just like one thing after another. Oh, and there is, there is a great um, – I don't know. He's not. Is he a drunk or is he just an old, old derelict? I think he's a derelict. Okay, he's great. Yes. Oh, that actor. We we just. Uh, he was the sheriff in Escape from Bogan County. Oh wow. 
Yeah, same yeah. actor. Yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, I'm going to get to Nate, and then we can dive into the meat awesome. of the film. So, Nate, I know you've seen this one before. Tell me what you thought of it. I really loved it the first time I watched it, and I still really love it. Yeah. I think it's just a very, to me, it's a very bare bones kind of film. Um, it's mainly just cat and mouse. I mean, through most of the movie, um, except, you know, sort of like Dan was saying in the, you know, first opening, like 15 or 20 minutes and in the last, you know, kind of minute of the film, her husband just really drove me crazy in this movie. I just, I felt like he, uh, un, he, he was very condescending to her. Like, um, I, at the end when he saw her hand and he was yeah. just like, see, you need me. Look at your hand. What'd you do? You know, like she's just, the most brainless, you know, idiot in the world or something. And I'm like, um, I, I had wondered if maybe part of the whole ditziness is because that's kind of how she'd been treated. So she just sort of, that was her persona. And I think she got thrown into a situation like this where we realized that she actually is very resourceful and she could handle herself on her own. You know, not to cut you off, but that's interesting because, you know, they don't really go into little boys much, but the little girl's played by Quinn Cummings, who is kind of a brilliant child. And she plays a pretty smart little kid in it. And it's kind of funny because they're sort of juxtaposed against each other. Like the little girl's got it more together than Valerie Harper does, but Valerie Harper is the mom. So it's it's sort of indicating that, that the wit and the sense is in her. She gave it to her daughter, but it's just she hasn't discovered it within herself yet. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that, too. Like, in a situation like this, I guess the silver lining is that I think she came out of it a lot more confident Yeah. of a person. I mean, even at the very end when she just kind of laughs at her husband because, like, she knows what she went through. I often wonder, though, would their marriage have made it, though, after that, after she went through that? Would they have made it in the long run? Because I feel like she came out of that a different person. That's a good question because I'd like to think that he really did love his wife and maybe he didn't I realize. I think he did, yes. Yeah. Hopefully he didn't realize what he was doing to her. So something that's interesting is the LA Times reviewed this film and they talked about that it had a feminist streak in it. And I personally, I think most TV movies from the 70s do, especially if they have women starring in it. Um, there's usually something about it that's dealing with some form of second wave feminism. And this film is sort of doing that. It's about how we discount housewives a lot of times or um, women like that who, who maybe don't have a career or, um, you know, are in these kind of marriages where the husband sort of takes care of everything as being women that can't handle themselves. And actually a movie, and I don't know if Dan thought of this movie when he was watching it, but uh, a movie I know you like, Dan, is called She Cried Murder, which we've talked about before and we should cover, um, with Linda Day George. And the whole point of that is that she gets discounted at the beginning because her husband dies when she's being questioned by the police and she's, quote unquote misremembering what she saw and she's doing that because the killers come to interview her he's the the killers the police officers come to investigate the case and they just blow it off as like oh she's hysterical because her husband died and you know she can't really take care of things and she's treated in much the same way as Valerie Harper is but the whole thing about Linda D. George's character and Valerie Harper is that they both manage to stay one step ahead of their assailant and it's showing how much we undermine women uh, in that time period, especially, um, and that these women can take care of themselves. Unfortunately, sometimes they can only prove it in these really extreme situations, you know. So 
so I got off on a tangent. I didn't mean to cut you off, Nate. But what I'm saying is I kind of hope that the husband was enlightened enough to understand that maybe he was doing something wrong and they could have worked it out. Yes, because, you know, and I, I'm giving the husband a lot of flack, uh, honestly. But I, I'm like you. I don't think that he was intentionally trying to, like, emotionally abuse her or anything like that. I didn't get that vibe. I just... I feel like they had both become complacent in the roles in their relationship, mm-hmm. and they needed to shake up. They got one, and yeah, they uh, yeah, the, you know, uh, thank you, killer. Do Do you think maybe this the sex picked up? <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's she only, moved to the lake afterwards. That's her. She went to, she went, she ended up leaving him for Gerald McCraney, which is probably the better choice, to be honest. But. <laughs> yes, yeah. thank, thank you, Killer is one of my favorite giallos. Thank you, Killer. Thank you, Killer. <laughs> can, can I ask? Uh, I, I thought I just had when, when you mentioned that you know, obviously we, we we've said many times that a lot of these were made sort of geared towards women. Do you think? And I, I don't. This could be just me trying to figure out why they spend so much time with the family in the beginning when to me it's irrelevant um is it because they're pitching it to women and there would be something it could have been something like okay you know we had a problem with the demographic with like dennis weavers just in a car and we like get a flashback or a audio i forget what it is we barely get anything um we need to if 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 we're having a woman um be the lead we have to give her a bit more um sort of family i'm gonna defer you to elaine rapping's uh movie of the week that's the name of a book she wrote i think it's called public lives private stories i can't remember the subtitle but the the main title is movie of the week so i'm always using elaine rapping and, and i wish i had the quote directly on me but so what she did was she wrote this book heavily based in i don't know film theory from like I guess it's cultural film theory from like um, the Frankfurt School of Popular Culture or whatever. It's like heavy duty stuff. And so, but she does it with movies like um, My Mother's Secret Life with Lonnie Anderson, right? So, but but what she what she proposed nice. was that all TV movies, and she made very few exceptions, although we know there there are exceptions. All TV movies are about the family. All TV movies are about the families in turmoil, and at the end of the movie, the TV movie, the family will be have made stronger through the struggle. Now this is she's looking at mostly nineties TV movies where I think it applies a little bit more, but she is she is right that TV movies are generally about the domestic space and and generally the woman and her role in it. So yeah, I think I don't know that they spent so much time with the family because they were thinking about a demographic because they already had Valerie Harper. But I think that I think it ate up a little time because really all they have is a chase. It's like it's like Nate said, it's it's super bare boned. So I think what they did was they tried to spend the first yeah. part of it sort of character building so that they could sort of give you this ending where you see what becomes of her at the end, which is a really positive thing. And so, but I think, but you're right. It is, it is setting it in a space. Well, I guess, you know, it's also setting it in a space that the viewers would be comfortable with. So, so many TV movies take place within the home. And I'm not saying theatricals don't do that, but TV movies are, are very much about that space. And so to do that, it kind of gets the audiences more comfortable with what they're looking at TV is really about shorthand because back then this is a 90 minute movie, I think, but in general they have very little time to kind of put you in the place and time that they need. And so they use a lot of things that they know you'll recognize and it's family, you know, and, and identities and the husband works, the wife doesn't, you know, kind of stuff. And so, um, but I think just having Valerie Harper in it sort of made it already interesting to women 
but you're right it's like they, it's like somebody said duel's really good what if we had a chip doing it you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and to me it completely works but i, I do wonder like when, when you get, when you get to the final sequence the final sort of battle that they that they get into um I I'd completely forgotten that she had a sick kid, and I completely forgotten that she was going to Denver. I was just seeing a woman whose character I, I'd really grown to like, and it was Valerie Harper too, trying to defeat this good-looking guy, you know. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Another a, a thing I just thought of because I have it playing here is there is the interesting sort of contrast between you get the sequence with her at breakfast with her family and then him at breakfast. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and then but because him at breakfast is he's got this big plate of food and he's got this cup of coffee and this waitress comes up and starts to talk to him but he can't talk and she's like, "What's the matter? Can't you talk?" And she keeps going on and on until he just picks up the cup of coffee and just pours it over his drink. And then he picks up the pot of coffee and pours it over everything and then leaves. And the breakfast scene begins with a lot of badgering, like, where's your cup of coffee? Didn't you have didn't you have a cup of coffee? And Valerie Harper immediately spilling a glass of like That's orange right. juice all over the place. So I, I don't I don't think we're meant to think, could she be a cold blooded killer like him? <laughs> but but however, I mean, because he he is obviously um and I mean he's he's Obviously, uh, to me, t- to me, he's been tortured, uh, which is what what that is. Some, something right. horrible happened to him. Um, so, so there, there's kind of the, um, you know, you see this guy who's obviously had a rough time of it, and is is yeah, gun running or, or doing something, and and being uh, sort of um, badgered. Uh, you know, by this guy on the phone, and then on the other end, you have Valerie Harper, who's being badgered by everyone in her family, sort of, you know, in a more loving manner. It never quite, you know, becomes a parallel, but but it almost seems like that's to me why they're doing that. But then it, it doesn't really happen. You know, that's interesting. And and but something you said earlier that really struck me is that you forgot that she had this kid. Of course, the kid is the drive uh, that keeps her going, obviously, to the point that she gets to. But I love that you said that because here's where the feminism comes in, right? She, her identity is more than that of just a mother, isn't it? So we're starting to see her as a person and not just the identity that she's been ascribed at the beginning of the film, which is housewife and mother. So it's, it's kind of great that you saw that. And I don't know that I saw it that way. I think the kid was always on my mind, but, um, but I think that's an important point that you brought up and I love it and I love the uh, juxtaposition of the two of them at breakfast because I hadn't considered that before mm-hmm. and I think that that's really interesting and I, and I like that you used the word tortured because she is in a way being tortured although it's unintentional and mm-hmm. I don't think they mean to do it but it's tortured to the point where she believes that she's kind of this sort of person and yes. whereas Richard Romanus is just hot guys <laughs> Uh, I think the moment to me when um, Valerie Harper's character loses all that sort of the the ditziness um, uh, is the moment when the car is completely out of gas. She's off the interstate. We've no concept of where the killer is in relation to her. And there's just this great shot where she's in the foreground on this. And I love how empty everything gets. All the streets get that that. It didn't bother me how like they're on the interstates and there there really doesn't seem to be any anyone there. I like that it seems to just really be the two of them. 
uh, out there. And and there's just this great shot, this long shot where she's like, her car's like in the middle of the road and she, she, she's got it in neutral. She's got the door open and she's steering it and pushing it down the road. And way at the end of the shot, you can see this lit up gas station. And it's like, that's quite some distance. I don't think I'd be able to do that. And she gets it right. She gets it right there. And and so it's so it's like at that moment and then the ingenuity in the gas station, which I mentioned earlier, yeah. is, is really sort of the moment I think where she sheds it. And it's like, OK, if anyone's going to be able to outrun this killer, it'll be her, regardless of whether or not she runs into a drunk guy in a car who's singing a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, operettas. Nicholas Pryor plays that guy. And I really like that scene. So here's where I get the Hitcher kind of thing is that even though in Duel... Uh, Dennis Weaver runs into different people. I think it's more so in the theatrical cut, you know, like when he helps the bus that's stuck and things like that. In The Hitcher, it kind of feels like, I guess because he meets Jennifer Jason Leigh, he's he's making relationships along the way with the cop. And of course, of course, he has that really interesting relationship with Rucker Hauer, C. Thomas Howell's character. And so, like, so I guess where I get The Hitcher is that it's almost like, not a character study, more so than dual, but it, but it's dealing more with like slice of life. So you get to see all these people's lives, like that drunk guy, for instance, who is an interesting character because. And Love this him. reminds me. This reminds me of something I want to bring up um, after we listen to this clip of um, him talking to Valerie Harper because I really like this scene. For man of beast. Here, you look like you could use some of this. No, no. Listen, a man is trying to kill me. What? Back there on the road behind us. He's been following me. He follows driving behind. Oh, no. He's trying to kill me. He wants to kill me. No, no, wait a minute, lady. No, no, I'm not crazy. He's really, really there. He's been following me. You see, I saw him kill a man, and now he's trying to kill me. Exactly who is this guy supposed to kill? No, no, I saw him. I saw him kill a, a police officer with a shotgun. You see, he was speeding on the interstate. And and, and, the, and the patrolman stopped him, pulled him over for the speeding. And, and then I merely pulled up, you know, to ask about a gas station. Hey, and then on. he shot him. Come on, take it easy. Oh. Here, come on. No, yeah, come on, come on, do you some good. Go I ahead. don't drink. Yeah, it's all right. Just take a look. <laughs> So Nicholas Pryor is essentially our Jennifer Jason Lee character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I wanted to point out was so we're gonna be a little spoilery here, um, is that she ends up going into this guy's car and they talk and he's a real sweet guy. He's not sleazy at all. He's talking about his wife and how the, his wife is decorating the house for him and he's just drunk. But he discounts her though, which I think is really interesting. She's having problems with some of the men in this film and um the killer's car pulls up behind Valerie Harper's car and she's like, Oh my god, Nicholas Pryor, he's here. And so he's like, well, let me just go and talk to him. I'm sure it's okay because he's drunk and he's not understanding the severity of the situation. And he goes over to the car to talk to Richard Romanus and he gets shot and killed. And this leads to 
which makes him the Jennifer Jason Lee character because I'm, you're, I don't think anybody was expecting that to happen quite the way it did. But also, what makes it so interesting is that Valerie Harper checks on him to make mm-hmm. sure he's okay before she takes off in his car. And I think that's important to remember because at the very end, um, and we'll talk about the end, I'm sure, in Subdeath, but she pulls him away from the potential fire, the killer, yes. and saves his life. And so she's a really caring person because mm-hmm. she, instead of just taking off, which is what I would have done the second I heard that gun go off, <laughs> she actually went and checked on this stranger mm-hmm. to make sure he, he was okay or not. And if he was okay, she probably would have tried to help him. And so I think that adds a lot of depth to Riley Harper's character because she's being discounted as a lot of different things as a dits and stuff, but she's, she's first of all, really resourceful. And secondly, she's compassionate. There, there are three things and I'll just say them very quickly that I love in that scene. One is that the guy is singing the libretto of the HMS Pinafore, which is a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, which if you know your Simpsons, you know that in season five in the Cape Fear episode, when Sideshow Bob has Bart uh, when they're in the witness protection program on the boat and he's going to kill him, Bart says, before you kill me, my last, uh, my, my last wish or whatever is for you to sing the entire libretto of the charming operetta HMS Pinafore. So that's great. Uh, the second thing is I love the shot where um, – they're talking and talking inside the car, and then all of a sudden, it's almost Argento-like. Suddenly, the camera is outside the car. The sound of their conversation, which we were just paying close attention to, is muffled. And the camera just kind of floats down the road, and we see his car, we see her car, space, space. The camera tilts a little bit. The killer's car. I love that shot. Uh, very on Spielberg to me, I think. And the third thing is the way they do play musical chairs with the cars. Yeah. Where where she takes her his car, the 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 drunk guy's car, backs it into the killer's car and puts it out of action. So he has to take her car and leave his car behind. So I I think that's a real fun scene, and it's pouring down rain the entire time. Yeah, Richard Romanus destroys that footlocker that she'd been so particular yes. to, to save. So all their photos and stuff are gone again, which I thought was a kind of an interesting sort of thing that and happened. And link, links it to the next film we're going to talk about, Family Photos. Oh, that's right. Um, so why don't we go ahead and talk about the ending so yes. we can um, wrap this up. Um, so uh, so she uh, manages to kind of escape or elude, I guess, him, the killer, through the night. And then she ends up at this house in the daytime. And they tell her that, that they don't have a phone, but that about four miles down the road is another house with a phone. And so... But there's nobody to take her because their son has the truck. So she says, well, I'll just start walking. And if your son comes back, tell him to pick me up and take me to this house. So, of course, she's walking down the road. And this truck comes and picks her up. Well, who's in it? But the killer. Thank you very much.
excited, but uh, I've, I've got to get to a phone. Oh, is that the house I had there? Is that the house? There. And, and yes, yes. And they have a telephone. There's a number of reasons why I love that scene um, and maybe it's hard without the visual because he's communicating with her. We all know who he is. She doesn't. But like when she tries to give him the money and he's like, oh, no, 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 with his finger, you know, don't even try to pay me. And yeah. um, and but also um, it's scary. When I was a kid, this scene really scared me. But that music, which I wanted to clip for the beginning, but it was hard to find it without any kind of other sounds around it. That music is so good. So the killer has like his own kind of music, which is that weird discordant tune that you heard at the end. And Richard Romanus is really good in it. He's very creepy in it and he's really scary, but I think the music really adds another layer of menace to his character. And, um, and I love it. So, so that clip there is, it kind of does a little bit of everything. And it's, it's great because Valerie Harper, I think, messes up a line and she keeps going because, you know, she says, Oh, your mother said, I mean, your father. And I kind of feel like maybe oh, yes. that was, that was like a one take scene. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she just had to keep going. Um, there's another at the scene at the beginning too when, um, her husband says, Oh, so and so's moving too. And she says, Oh, that's great because I'm really very fond of Helen. Like you could tell she couldn't remember the character's <laughs> name. Oh, I'm really fond of, Helen and her husband too. And so she carries the film. She carries the film pretty much like 75% of it. So yeah, that's, I love, I love those moments. Those are great. Yeah. So it's just a really creepy scene. And when I was a kid, when I was a kid, this movie <laughs> was like everything, but especially that scene when he's at the diner and he spits the dollar out at her or whatever. It's like, Oh, so scary. This movie just used to terrify me as a kid. But anyway, so so anyway, she realizes that this is not the son of the couple that she was talking to. And then she does this really casual thing where she tries to jump out the car, <laughs> which I love. But he's totally on it, and he manages to keep her from doing it. And, um, and they get into kind of a fisticuffs. And so it kind of ends where, like, she's in the truck driving it, and she rams him from the side, and it looks really painful. And he can't speak, so he's making all these weird noises. And she's trying to get, there's this helicopter that's been flying over the area where she is. And so she decides she's just going to blow up the truck to get attention. And she puts gas in the, um, not gas, she puts her handkerchief in the um, little gas tank thing and lights it on fire. And then she drags the killer out to safety, which surprised me. And, and then everything is fine. And then she ends up at the hospital and that scene we were talking about where her husband's like, oh, you can't do anything without me and look at your hand. And she's like, I have a story for you kid and um and then that's where the film ends but um i think it's got a really strong ending i i like it i think it's really scary i think it builds up into kind of its natural climax yeah. i think we know how it's going to end but but it's still kind of surprising in the way they do it and i think the matchup you know the like the showdown between the two of them is really suspenseful and i do like that end where her husband is still this like you know you really need me kind of thing and she's transformed into another person mm -hmm. and she's and she gets to her son 
Yes. You know, she yes. does it all. This is a woman that can do it all. I, I, I did wonder how she, like, what that helicopter was that picked her up where she didn't arrive with, like, a lot of cops or something. And, yeah, I, cause I almost wonder if it was just, like, a helicopter passing by and they picked her up and said, hey, lady, you okay? You know, and they just dropped her off and I'll tell my husband. And maybe she did that. That would have been great. I kind of think the police just handled her and then they let her go. And then okay. she just went, I don't know how she got there. Maybe they gave her a police escort and we just didn't see the outside of the ho- hospital. Yeah. I'm I, not I, sure. I, but you're right. I'm not quite sure how she got there without anybody in her family realizing what had happened. Yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, you're right. I, I think it is a really nicely done ending. And there is something, too, about the fact that she, like, she like plugs him with the car and he drops. And it's not like a, a huge, like, big moment. It's almost like off... And, and, and like it's like a kind of an I want to say like an overhead shot where he just gets hit, and, and so it's not like like a big moment where like he's standing there leering at us and she's driving at him. It's just kind of almost casual, like she hits yeah. him and he drops and he cannot get up again because it hurt him too much. And it, the noise that he's making is so upsetting. Oh yes, and yeah. he's got sand in his mouth, and it's just like he's really had it. Not that he yeah. didn't deserve it, but but like, um, but it looks painful. I almost, I'll, I'll say just one more thing, and then I'm going to stop yakking. But I need to go back and watch Duel again because I remember throughout Duel, Dennis Weaver, even up to almost the end, being like, "Oh God, this is happening some more." Whereas Valerie <laughs> Harper, I feel like has has a bit of more of like, "Okay, I got to keep doing this. I got to yeah. keep pushing until this is over," and, and so. So I, 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 I could be wrong on that because I haven't watched Duel in a while. Um, but, but I feel like his character is always like, oh, my God, the demonic truck is back. You know, whereas, whereas <laughs> is, is, is Valerie Hawke is more like, we're doing this until it's done. Yeah, he's, he's visibly terrified. And I think she's terrified, but she's got this end game with her son that is more important. Her son, yes. Yeah, and I think he keeps her more focused on what's happening. And also, like, she is compassionate because the derelict scares her, but then she realizes that there might be something off with him. So she's gentle with him, and she gives him money. That's she, sweet scene. That's yeah, she's, sweet, like, taking sweet. time to for, like, these people that she's dealing with, you know? And so you get to know them, too. Yeah. It's really interesting, but she she's, like... She's got a goal, but the, if the fear is there and it's there, you can see it, but it's almost like secondary to to the end game. I guess I keep saying, but that's the only way I can think to word it. Is that the like uh, is that like a maternal instinct kind of thing as opposed to Dennis Weaver's just going to like a, on a business trip? And you know, it's like, hey, if I can't make it to the business trip, f that noise, you know, I'll take a vacation. You know, I I wonder if that is that is that what what drives I mean, obviously, that's what drives her. But is that sort of the difference, maybe? I don't know. Probably. Okay. <laughs> it's a very thoughtful film in a way. Um, it is, It is yeah. bones, but it's, I guess, in, a, in its time and place, it's kind of saying something a little bit more political, I think, than mm-hmm. it, maybe it was given credit for. Although Kevin Thomas did pick up on it in his LA Times review. So I guess we all liked it, right? Um, yes. So let me just do some background um, on it real quick and then we'll dive into the next film so uh, let me tell you it aired on february 7th 1977 on nbc it was an nbc world premiere movie also running uh, that week was smash up on interstate five i don't know if you guys have seen that one but that has a if you're into your car porn that's probably a good one to go with um and there was also a rerun of born innocent that aired that week as well you know for all this 
flack that Born Innocent got when it originally aired. It sure did rerun a lot on TV, I'll tell you. So it ran against, on CBS, All's Fair and something called the Andros Targets, which was, I think, maybe like an action-adventure show. And then on ABC was part two of How the West Was Won, which was a miniseries. Night Terror got a very low rating. It came in uh, past number 60 for the week. It ranked number 98 out of 168 TV movies to air in the 1976-77 season. Yeah, the rating was a 16.0 slash 25. So it ended up actually in the bottom third, maybe not quite the third, bottom past halfway point. But anyway, it reran on Sunday, July 17, 1977, and it actually... It's got almost the same rating. It came in at number 101 for the season with a 15.8 slash 32. So it brought in almost the exact same numbers. Valerie Harper did a little promotion for the movie. She was interviewed and uh, the article goes, Valerie Harper CBS on CBS's TV's Rota plays a dramatic role on NBC TV's Night Terror. She says, I love comedy. It's the most demanding, difficult kind of performing, I think. So it really wasn't hard for me to look terrified in Night Terror. I had plenty of practice when I first started doing comedy. And then I came across this really weird comparison um, that some journalists did. Do you guys remember the TV show Family? It was kind of like Eight is Enough, one of those type shows. And they compared it to Night Terror. So let me read you what they wrote. Essentially, contemporary urban Waltons, family is less generic and more relevant in its concerns. The edition last Tuesday night by David Jacobs, directed by Richard Kinnan, was a case in point. The blind terror of urban life today, when Meredith Baxter Burney, as the luscious divorcee Nancy, begins receiving anonymous gifts and feels someone is constantly watching her, commenting in the kind of gifts he sends on her morals and her standards, expressing approval and disapproval. Her terror is the terror that grabs each of us by the throat rather than the unreal kind of synthetic fear of the movie Night Terror. So that's really reaching, but somebody did oh, that and I thought it was yeah. interesting. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times thought it was superior. He called it a superior lady, lady in distress thriller, a powerful expression of contemporary paranoia. According to Thomas in his review, he said it was Richard Romanus's idea to have the character use a mechanical voice box, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize that. I thought that was just in the script. Um, the, there's a newspaper called the Index Journal from Greenwood, South Carolina, they, uh, that was one of the only other reviews I could find. They said it was an okay suspense chase. That's what their review was. Um, Queen Cummings. Baloney. Yeah, I know, I know. Queen Cummings was an up and coming child actress who attended public school but was enrolled in the California's uh, Mentally Gifted Minors program. I read an interview with her that blew my mind. She was like six or seven when she made this movie and she sounded like a 20 year old. Um, I actually follow her on Twitter if anybody's interested in Quinn Cummings. She did all these great TV movies and she was in an episode of Dark Room um, when she was a kid and oh. she's really quite brilliant brilliant as an adult too um her twitter is really she, fun she she was also on uh um there there's a mill creek family feud set that has a lot of celebrity based family feud episodes she, she's she, she was in family and and i forget if she's in a bunch of episodes but i remember she's in them and they have her like standing on a box and she's she's adorable yeah and and smarter than i ever will be yeah yeah, I kind of I kind of oh. think she's smarter than 99%. And she's very political, yes. so if you're into politics, yeah. that, her Twitter's really interesting. Um, so Michael Tolan played the husband. Uh, he was known for his voice, and he actually began his acting career on a Detroit radio station playing parts in the radio plays for The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet. He was also a theater actor. He performed on Broadway. He was in things such as A Half Full of Rain and Will Successful, Rock Hunter, another Julie Stein production. And he appeared in three episodes of The Mary Tyler Moore Show playing Din Dan Whitfield, which I think I remember. I think he was Rhoda, not Rhoda, I think he was Mary's boyfriend for a couple episodes. So E.W. E. Swackhammer um, was the director. His full name is Egbert 
Wanderink, Wanderink, Swackhammer Jr., Wanderink, <laughs> Swackhammer Jr., hopefully I got that right. He was primarily yeah. a TV movie director. Um, other genre telefilms he directed include Death at Love House with Robert Wagner and Kate Jackson from oh. the early 70s, Vampire with Richard Lynch from 1979, oh. and, Terror, and Terror at the London Bridge, one of my favorites oh. with David Hasselhoff from 1985. Yeah, a full-fledged slasher. Um, this was Carl Gabler's only IMDb writing credit with one more story editing credit for something called The Runaway from 1961. Um, this was his co-writer, Richard Denault's only writing credit as well. Um, Denault was actually best known as a child actor who had small parts in movies in the 30s and 40s. Um, he was actually in several arguing episodes as a little kid extra. Diana Manoff played one of the gas station attendants' girlfriends, and she shot Night Terror the same year she appeared in the telefilm The Possessed. I don't know if anybody recognized that one of the gas station attendants was Andy on uh, Jaws 2. Do you remember? The curly-headed guy? Oh, yes! kind of chubby. Uh- I felt I felt like I recognized both of them. Yeah, but I didn't. I wasn't sure it happened. I was focusing on Valerie. Yeah, of course we all were. Um, also, that actor's name is Gary Springer, and he was in an ABC After School special called Dinky Hawker with Wendy Jo Sperber. That's excellent if you haven't seen it. Um, Richard Romanus is a pretty well recognized character actor, I guess. What I want to say about him before I go a little bit into his career is if you watch Rhoda, he is the guy who got Rhoda the apartment that her and Joe would end up moving into. So in an episode of Rhoda, Rhoda was living with her sister, Brenda, and she got married and she needed to find an apartment. And Brenda said, this really neat apartment opened up in my building. You should look at it. And it was owned or was being rented by Richard Romanus and he wanted to sublet it. So the guy who chased her across the desert actually gave her an apartment for all of her troubles. Oh, my God. I I remember that first scene. It was... I, I would love to rent your apartment. Do you want to rent my apartment? Oh, it was so funny. You had to wait for the jokes, but they were good. <laughs> they were. So anyway, he's he, he's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, I guess I, he was in Pandemonium, right? He was in Murphy's Law, where he works out a lot, if anybody wants to watch it for that. Um, his brother, <laughs> we all recognize, is Robert Romanus, who played Damone in Fast Times at Richmond High and Snake on the Facts of Life. They're brothers, which I love. Um, Richard now lives on a Greek island, and he's a author, and he published his memoirs called Act 3 a few years ago. And by the way, I Googled him, and he looks G-O-O-D. Good. He looks good. <laughs> So, Charles Fries, uh, who produced this, is considered the godfather of the TV movie, and he is turning 91 in October, and he still works. So, he's produced and or supervised over 275 made-for-TV movies. In 1977, the year this came out, he oversaw the production of, of course, Night Drive, The Spell, which we've talked about, Terraces, which was this soap opera kind of pilot movie that I love, with um, Eric Roberts' wife, uh, The Trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, Love Affair, the Eleanor and Lou Gehrig story, The Greatest Thing That Almost Happened, Halloween and the New Adams Family, and Intimate Strangers, which I think might have had Dennis Weaver in it, but I might be mixing that up with something else. So he all just that year alone, Charles Fries was the executive producer and or producer on those films. Wow. Yeah. Horror again, as I mentioned earlier, was fantastic. It was done by somebody named Fred Steiner. He was a child prodigy. Um, he's best known for composing the theme to Perry Mason, which, of course, we can all hear in our heads right now, I'm sure. And he composed some music for Star Trek and the Twilight Zone as well. And that is all my background. It happens across the lake. Murder, murder, cold-blooded murder. A loving couple discovers a deadly secret. <laughs> Looks like somebody wants you to leave. So much peaceful country life. A daring woman struggles for her family's survival. Valerie Harper, Gerald McRaney, the people across the lake next Monday. Take care. 
this one, The People Across the Lake, is about the, uh, well, it begins with a 15 years ago opening sequence, and we're in the second half of the 80s, so you've we've all seen the slashers. We're all big slasher fans, so we know the way these things begin, and we see this beautiful house, and we see a woman in red high-heeled shoes get killed in the woods, put in a canoe, someone drags her, brings her out to the middle of the lake, but won't drop her body into the lake. It's a lot like the, that first Columbo episode, well, the um, the one that Steven Spielberg directed, that Columbo episode where uh, what's um, uh, where the woman is taken out to the water and then dumped in the water. That's what it reminded me of. So this canoe goes out, and he's like, I've, you know, I've got to dump you into the water, but he can't do it, so he brings her back in. And then it says 15 years later. And you meet the Yeomans. The Yeomans live in, I forget, are they in L.A.? Are they in New York City? I, I don't know where the heck they are. L.A. They're in, they're in L.A. Okay, so they're in L.A. They are, you know, live, living the high life, working hard, you know, on their exercising, and it's all crazy, and they have two kids. It's Valerie Harper's Rachel, Gerald McCraney is Chuck, and they have uh, two kids, Lisa and Stevie, Steve, Steve and Stevie. There is this um, uh, wacky-ass scene where they see someone's face in a bathroom window, and they call the cops, and suddenly there's like, it's a whole huge media event because a neighbor actually stopped by and instead of knocking on the front door because he lost his keys he looked in through a bathroom window as you do yeah exactly i was going to say it's it's a, we could talk about that in a bit but um uh, and and so it becomes this weird crazy s- sequence and I, I will say so. So right after that, I think I think we have a scene where where the two of them, uh, Chuck and Rachel, are sort of getting into bed and they're discussing sort of L.A. and life. I hate the way she smiles. That damn teenage smirk. She's going down the tubes, Chuck. You know that, don't you? Oh, that's right, Chuck. Ignore me. I'm not. I'm trying to read this article. It's okay. I'm used to it. Don't open that. The alarm's on. Locked in. Fake air. Look, I know my boy from the big city can take it, but Chuck, I'm telling you, I am from Lake Country. Ah, the glories of the Midwest speech. Wow. Ouch. Yeah, that's... So, (laughs) so it's... It's interesting because he's very much like, uh, yeah, honey, okay, thank you so much. Almost, almost instantly, they're suddenly moving to the country. Okay, so yeah, so the omens head out to the lake, and the 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 daughter isn't terribly thrilled about any of it. She she spends most of her time complaining. Stevie, the the son, is 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 more into it. But Rachel and Chuck love it to pieces, and we sort of meet. Uh, assorted uh, folks around the area. There's a guy named Malcolm Bryce, who who is a very nice guy who comes to visit them. There's a Ruth Mortimer, who runs the local general store, who is a very chatty lady. Uh, I I forget their names. Actually, I I didn't write down their names, because I called them the Filler Brothers. They're these two redneck guys who keep showing up and bothering the yeomans. Uh, and there's also a guy who they say he he lives. I was a little unsure whether he had a house or he just lived in the woods nearby, named Henry Link, and he's very sort of Bruce Dern esque. And so we get all these sort of characters, and it's it's this very it's this kind of closely knit town, apart from a few moments when it's kind of not. And life kind of goes on, and it's it's you know it's 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 lovely and and pastoral, and we're having a great time until Chuck goes out for a swim, 
as the kids are um, waiting for the bus and they meet Ruth Mortimer's daughter, Debbie, uh, who becomes a good friend with uh, Lisa. And Chuck is swimming and all of a sudden he, he swims through like some debris in the lake and in the debris is a human arm. He calls the cops. The sheriff shows up. They show up with uh, the deputy, John uh, John Bryce, who is the um, uh, son of Malcolm Bryce, the nice gentleman we met earlier. And John, the sheriff is, uh, but but the hand is gone. The arm is gone. It's like, oh well, maybe Mr. Yeoman, you thought it was this, that, or the other thing. And he's like, no, it was a human arm. And even Rachel begins to don him later on. And the sheriff kind of takes off, but John kind of says. You know, there have been a lot of missing people and bodies turning up around here lately. And um, a- actually, there's a fun scene where, um, uh, relating to this and-, and the bodies turning up, where Rachel is in um, Ruth's, uh, well, Ru- Ruth uh, runs, it's like a general store soda fountain kind of thing. And-, and-, and they sit down and Ruth loves talking and she begins gabbing. So, um, you were just telling me, Ruth, about, uh, I mean, I understand there have been some disappearances. Murder. That was murder, pure and simple, there's no other word for it. Now, the men in this town, they like to be real hush-hush about that. Men in this town are like a bunch of old biddies about that. Like Eli and his electrical shop. Do you know that he will not allow a woman to set one foot inside of that shop of his? Now, why is that, I ask myself? That man is not right in the head, Rachel. The last murder was five years ago. No. Honey, it was just last spring. That was an old grandpa, too. Now, why would somebody want to murder somebody that had one foot already in the grave? It just doesn't make no sense. And the one before that was a young bride. Oh, that is the one that just gives me the creeps whenever I think about it, because that body was so mutilated. It's just awful. Now, I have my theories about all this, but, well, my husband, Dwayne. Well, Dwayne. Anyway, I think that there are certain residents of Tomahawk, in particular, one Mr. Henry Link, that ought to be watched really close. That's my theory. I want to know about Dwayne. Yeah, I, I, I actually just scanned the cast list. I don't think we meet Dwayne. We don't. Oh. We don't. I bet that's a sitcom. No. That would be a fun sitcom. Maybe. Maybe? I don't <laughs> she's know. She's so good. She's, to me, she's fun. Yeah. Dorothy Lyman's kind of the highlight. Yeah, she's so much fun in this. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so um, at, at this point, uh, th- things kind of get a little crazy because we, we meet Henry Link as Rachel and Chuck uh, are jogging through the woods. And they jog onto, I guess, what I, I'm a little unsure exactly what's his property or what's going on with him, but he pulls like a gun on them and kind of shoots them away. And. Uh, they they kind of they they end up kind of jogging through their property again a little later and yet you know, we have we have scenes with all the characters including uh, Malcolm and you know John the, the deputy and such um, and we we see the I, I call them the filler brothers uh, the two hillbilly guys who keep kind of coming to Chuck and saying like 
Yeah, uh, you're uh, reporting that uh, it's it's like a Jaws kind of thing. It's like you shouldn't be reporting like something bad happening because it's going to ruin the trade and this, that, and the other. There's a scene where Rachel and Chuck are jogging and they decide to have some sex in the woods. Love it! Unfortunately, unlike my experiences, they find a dead body. And But they do the smart thing, which I love so much. If this were an Abbott and Costello film, they would have screwed this all up. But they do it right here. Rachel goes to get the sheriff. Chuck stays with the body, or maybe it's the other way around. And and the sheriff finds the body. It's like, okay, there's a body here. Oh, my gosh. All right. And they, they begin to investigate the body. The past history of all the missing people and things don't quite come out to light. But it, it sort of becomes more like, okay, someone got killed in our property. Okay, Dad probably got grabbed by an arm there's something going on here and meanwhile like the kids stevie sort of becomes friends with henry link who's kind of survivalist who's setting up traps in the woods and he's a little weird and a lot of time passes and we go through halloween where um the the daughter lisa and is it debbie have like a little a meeting in the woods where they're looking through like a psychology textbook and they come across a very important uh french phrase which will, which if you know the phrase, will clue you into what the ending of the movie is going to be. And uh, that's not quite a spoiler because I wouldn't have known the French phrase except there's an X Files episode. I, I I can try to say it in French. It's folie folie adieu it means a folly shared by two. Mm. So so there's that scene. And and so what happens is, and I'll wrap this up in a moment, is that we kind of. Um, it becomes kind of a mystery. Who did it? Because we know there are killings. And it goes through Halloween. It goes to Christmas. And, and uh, Rachel is very much into what's going on and trying to find out what's happening. And then I, I guess I'll kind of fade out before um, we get evidence that someone has been in their house. And they're not sure how the person got in the house. And they also might find a body in their house. And I'm going to leave it there. Things are going crazy. Bodies are piling up. What will Valerie Harper and Gerald McRaney do? The cray-cray. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. So that that's kind of it. There's a lot going on in this movie, and the tone shifts several times. So it's kind of tough to pin down. But yeah, that that's the basics of it. Yeah. Someone is killing someone in this space. Um, no, I'd seen People Across the Lake before, but only once, and several years ago and what i remembered most about it was that it felt like every two like seven minutes something weird would happen like it was like when you said the tone was all over the place it just felt like you know oh seven minutes passed okay he might have seen an arm or a branch okay seven more minutes look there's a dead body like you said dan the tone is all over the place but in a fun way i really kind of like the energy of this film because it's all just it's off the rails. I'm not really sure what's happening, but it's also like, it really hates country people. It really hates them. Um, and it, it might not be like the most enlightened movie I've ever seen, but it's like, I kind of think I understand what Daylene Young, who's the writer was trying to do. And I kind of feel like she was trying to say that no matter where you go, there's bad. And so like, you could try to shut it out, but it's always going to be there. So it's kind of, do you live your life running from the bad thing or do you understand that it exists and you stand up against it and you just keep going and living the life you need to live i think that's ultimately what daily young was going for when she made this movie but it kind of feels like it really hates 
people and 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 that live in the mountains and they're yokels and i but i appreciate the energy of it because of that i also thought it had a bad ronald vibe when you find out that there's like this room nobody knew about in the house and you just knew you know what i mean like scott jacoby was hanging out in the basement or something and so it's it's not directly referencing bad ronald but i think this is the late 80s and i think it's looking back to its early 70s classic horror tv films and it's seeing what worked in those and it's trying to sort of apply them to a modern setting and it does a pretty good job it's a flawed film but it doesn't matter because of the energy and it's really well done the acting's really good i think tammy lauren is a standout in this i really i love her in everything um she plays the teenage daughter in this but she's really great um everybody's great barry corbin's great Gerald mccraney i mean the whole cast is really good obviously dorothy lyman who we heard a clip from is wonderful it's so it's it's like somebody compared they called it like miss marple of like i don't know the appellations or something and so in a way it's they're right because it's kind of a cozy mystery it's almost like all this horrible 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 stuff is happening but it doesn't matter because you just want to watch the actors do their thing and kind of just let the movie unfold as it unfolds it's almost like i don't want to even think about what's happening on screen just let them do it and I accept it for what it is. It's like it's taking you into its own universe so gleefully that it's it's easy for me to look past any of its faults. And it does have a lot of faults, I have to say. But it's just really, really fun. So it was really great for me to revisit this. Um, Nate, you'd seen this, right? No, I had not. Oh, you hadn't. What did you yeah, think well, of it? Um, I thought that this one was fun. Uh, I, you know, I thought that uh, it... It had a lot of um, slasher-esque, I should say, kind of moments. Um, And I especially absolutely adore the scene where, and I won't spoil it, but the um uh, the murderer throws an axe at the family and they shut the door in the nick of time yeah <laughs> the door i'm like everybody that throws axes in this movie is incredibly accurate oh. <laughs> were those um, were those tomahawks but, or axes just because it's at tomahawk is that's what i or hatchets Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. All right. Everything. Throw everything. Right? They throw everything. Yeah, they just throw and throw and throwing. But um, I thought that the mystery itself, um, and I'm usually awful at guessing the identity of the villains um, in in movies, but um, I actually guessed it correctly in this one. It didn't take away from the fun of the movie, um, but I felt like there wasn't enough suspects in the in yeah. the movie for me, I felt yeah. like it was um, such a limited amount of people that there's only so many people it could be. Yeah. Um, but I mean, still, that was a lot of fun. And there's that great moment I was mentioning with the axing where uh, the family is um, seeing who's uh, coming up to them, and this person out of nowhere just starts screaming and raising an axe and running at them. I'd be like, <laughs> what? The- crap i I am out of here this movie i kind of wonder why you're talking about it do you kind of think it's a parody of the slasher movies because i'm thinking about like some of the it's there's so much funny stuff in it like do you remember after joe mccraney finds what he thought was a body part and they come back and they're like i think it's just driftwood and then he's at that seafood place and they're eating like the fried catfish or whatever and the two yokel guys come up and they're like, well, I'm surprised you're eating that because there's dead bodies in that river, according to you. And then Joe McCraney doesn't want to eat the catfish. And then he looks over at Valerie Harper and she's like, no, honey, it's good. Well, <laughs> and, you know, there's also that scene at the end where they find all the uh, skeleton remains of all these people in, in that in the room you were talking about. And the daughter's okay. just like, gross. 
And I'm like, you got some maniac after you with a hatchet, and you're just talking about how gross dead bodies are. Well, yeah, because that's like deranged and happy birthday to me and a a bunch of other films that I can't think of right now. But that's like, that's what I thought of right there. And gross, I guess, that's kind of the daughter, though, right? Like, that was her thing. Like, she was nonchalant to everything. So it's like, okay, our basement is filled with corpses. Please. So whatever about all of it. Like, I'm surprised when the killer was running at him with a hatchet, she wasn't like, get out of here with that. Well, she was telling her mom, because her her mom becomes like this, like, Nancy Drew type character. And she's like, mom, I I think you need psychiatric help. No, seriously. I think you need it. Like, the way she talks to her mom is so funny. There there is the way it goes from, what is it? They find the body, then it's like Halloween, and then suddenly it's Christmas. And and Valerie Harper's character walks in and says, I I think it's this person and this person, like she's doing a game of Clue or something like that. And you're like, suddenly, wait a minute, it's Christmas. And they're like, Mom, you've been doing this for weeks. So I do wonder, yeah, are they are they kind of like like joking on, on the, uh, uh, like a mix of old Dark House mystery slasher? There's got to be some kind of winking at the camera with this movie. Um, there's just too many moments that, you know, it's yes. kind of like... We're not taking this too seriously. It's just kind of a fun movie. And and that's what I ask for in my movies. So that's why I really liked it. Um, I feel like tonally it's 100% different from Night Terror. Yeah. But that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I like them both for different reasons. Yeah, it is. It's definitely like, I, like it's like Dan said. There's, we're not quite sure what the tone is. Like with Night Terror, you know what the tone is. Yes. Like it's very serious and it's a suspense and it and it sticks with those like the coda of the suspense. Here, it's like it's up and down and up and down. And so, like I took a writing class years ago, taught by Brian Taggart, who wrote The Spell and who wrote Visiting Hours. And he said that's why I mentioned that every seven minutes something happens. His advice when you wrote a script was to have something happen every seven minutes when you're writing one of these horror scripts and it feels like the person who wrote this Daylene Young, who's already really established at this point, um, took Brian's class and then was like, Oh, yeah. I need something every seven minutes. Every seven minutes. <laughs> something's going to happen. Yeah. You can almost time it. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Also, this is, I think I went over Daylene Young's and we'll talk about her in the uh, background stuff, but I went over her filmography and I think this is the only thing she did that's even borderline suspense thriller horror at all so it, i was trying to think does she just not really understand what it is or is she making fun of it is this sort of like oh, that's interesting, summer yeah. party massacre do you know where summer party massacre had a bunch of hands in the pot so like they had the certain idea of what it was and what they were trying to do with it and they're parodying it mm-hmm. certain elements of the slasher but then it got kind of mixed up in the production so they lost a lot of that comedy mm-hmm. and i kind of wonder if people across the lake had that same problem oh yeah yeah, I, I could I could definitely see that because one of the things when I was watching it was it's one of those movies where if if you have the movie playing and go out of the room for two minutes, there's a chance that when you come back, you'll feel like you're watching a different movie. Um, just because yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll suddenly it'll go from like oh my god that dead we found it we were trying to make love in the woods and suddenly there's a dead body and suddenly hey it's Christmas and mom thinks she's Miss Marple uh, yeah what's happening you know and it's it's up up until maybe like the last like twenty minutes or so when it kind of settles into um, a theme because it's weird because it's like it's like a mist it's like a mystery until they kind of say okay. Here's what's happening. 
and they tell you exactly what's going on. Yeah, they tell you there's no... <laughs> yeah, there's no, you know, it's like the, the moment it happens, it's like, okay, yeah, all right. And it's really, it's nice and twisted, and it it works, and I think the ending works. Um, and I, I think the ending where you're like, I, I love a good final girl. I occasionally like a final boy. I prefer a final girl. But I've never really seen a final family. And that's the joy of this film, is that's kind of what it is. It's it's an entire family running from a couple of crazy killers with... I'm going to call them Tomahawks, just because it's it's Tomahawk. Uh, so... Oh, Lake Tomahawk. Yeah, they're at Lake Tomahawk. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, I think my, my overall thoughts on the film is that I love the opening, which is very slasher to me. The, the bit in L.A. where they actually, I, I, I enjoy it, but, but the sort of basic premise of our neighbor lost his key, and instead of knocking on the front door, he's peering in our bathroom window, which causes this huge to-do, crazy foo that goes on and on, is a bit much for me. Um, but, but they do move out fairly quickly, and they get there. I love the, uh, the teenage daughter is a good character. After the opening scenes with her, I think I think she gets on my nerves until the point where Gerald McCraney says, uh, "You know, put put your seatbelt on over your mouth." And then the moment everyone kind of smiles, no, they, they kind of smile at that, like, "Okay, I get it. It's a it's a teenage girl." You know, it's like if if I'm gonna have like all I thought of from around this time period is say like Troll Two. Like the teen teenage daughter in Troll Two, and how yeah. crazy she is. Like I prefer you go that crazy. I like how they settle in. I like the slow build of all the everything that's happening. I um I'll be honest. The the two um, redneck guys. I call them the filler brothers because by the last time they showed up, I sort of realized that I, in my mind I thought, okay, they're not going to have anything to do with what's going on. So these are just two <laughs> characters who are showing up, just filling up time. And by the third time, like I think it was the third or fourth time, I think it was the, I think I think they show up three times. Um, by the last time they showed up, I was like, okay, I'm done with these characters. I don't need them anymore. If you can set aside sort of a through line and enjoy all uh, the main story and all the side things, there's so much going on in this movie, and. It, it's constantly shifting where it's going and some of the moments some of the reveals of what's happening like when Valerie Harper is looking at family photos and, and such and is like uh, figuring things out and it's like where'd my needle point go on the wall and and it's just I, I don't know I don't know that I absolutely love the movie but I watched it twice over the past like three or four days and I really enjoyed it um, I, I actually, for some reason, and maybe you, you can you could tell me what may, maybe if I'm thinking of, of something else here, Amanda. But but for some reason, I thought this was a film about a family that went on vacation, and there were people like on the other side of the lake who like harassed them. Not quite Last House in the Left style, but in the that's not what this film is at all. But for some reason, I kept away from this film because I thought that's what this was. It's not that that at all. And I don't know what I'm thinking of. Is there a TV movie like that? 
that you can think of? There probably is. There's nothing coming to mind right off the top of my head, but I'm sure and somebody listening is probably thinking, oh, it's this movie. Why don't you, you know jerk, it? You jerk, yeah. I'm sure somebody listening can, can write to us. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a movie that exists. Oh. So... So if anybody out there knows what it is, please let us know so we can talk about it on the show. Yes. Because um, we're always up for new TV movies. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, let's um, let's just talk about the ending. Yes. Um, so the big reveal is it's the quote-unquote least likes, likely suspect, which is Barry Corbin, who is like the carpenter. And he's this real sweet guy. And he and his son, who is the like oh, deputy um, yes. Who first informs the family that there have been disappearances um, in the area, and they're doing it together. The son, I guess, because there's something wrong with him, and the the well, obviously they both have something wrong with them. But um, Barry Corbin's character is sort of uh, mostly upset because his wife was having an affair. Was she going to leave him? Was that happen? And then he killed her. And yes. don't know if it sets something off. I can't remember exactly. Maybe you guys can clarify. Or if it was just if I kill a bunch of people, nobody will think it's me. I thought he did it to keep have the corpses to keep his dead wife company because he was crazy. I thought I thought it was kind <laughs> of yeah, like a like a deranged kind of thing that or or like he was bringing in just like yeah, or I, I'm sorry, uh, like a happy birthday to me or something. Like he was just bringing in a lot of characters to keep the. Um, uh, his the the facade of the good life they were supposed to be living alive. So that's why he was killing these people. I, I, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, yeah, and then his son was just sort of this sort of dope who got kind of caught up in it. You know, he was torn. And there's this really weird scene where towards the end where Barry Corbin tells his son, go to the house and kill Valerie Harper. And he's like, okay. And there's no real, like, like segue into what happened so like she's like oh you've been through so much honey and i can't even remember what sparked her compassion for him but like she's hugging him and she and he's thinking of her as like his mom yeah and so he's got all the softness for her and he can't do it but what's weird is that it cuts and then you just see valerie harper go in the house yes. and you're like okay you know what I mean? Like they're embracing and then she just yeah. goes in and then they don't even show her walking to the house. They just cut to her in the house. And you're like, well, I'm not real sure what happened with that edit. But it's such a weird scene because I think the actor was really good, the one that played the son, because he's really kind of torn up inside about what he's doing. And you can tell that there's like this internal dialogue going on with him about what's right and what's wrong obviously he's a deputy but like it's whatever i've under the impression that like whatever his dad really wants him to do is what he's gonna do and it leads to all sorts of mayhem and stuff for him and so he's in a way sympathetic and also um the vietnam character guy is uh, also very sympathetic um he ends up just helping the son like they don't they like build forts and traps together and yeah. he's like this just nice guy who really had a bad time in vietnam and so he as he's the number one suspect at first because he's kind of off his rocker the brute the one who looks like bruce stern and um but he uh it turns out he's just kind of this nice guy but oh, I'm sorry. Anyway, so so we get to the ending. So we find out Barry Corbin is the killer, and his son can't kill Valerie Harper. So they're like, we're gonna go over there and just demolish the house, and and all kinds of mayhem happens. So the family all ends up together, and 
they end up like there's we can't figure out how to get out of the house so let's go through the basement because Val Harper's just discovered this room and with the bodies in it which is where that scene happens where the daughter's like gross when she sees the bodies and they and what the thing is they sh- should have known that there was a basement because there's a storm door because that's how they try to get out oh yeah yeah where did they think the storm door led yes so so they go through the, the past the bodies you guys are going to have to help me with the end end because I'm starting to get it all mixed up. Okay. And so they go and they open the storm door and then Barry Corbin is there. So they close it and somehow they end up back on the beach, right? Where the lake is. Yes. And the house catches on fire. Oh, that's right. They set the house on fire by accident. With yes. the, I guess there were candles in the basement or something. Yes. Uh, around the around the, the corpses and such. I believe there were, there were candles, right? Is that right? I think. Or I don't know. There's a lot going on, folks. Who knows? <laughs> and then they, and then they so they somehow get out of the house and they end up on the beach and I kind of feel like there's a just before dawn moment right isn't Joe McCraney like almost going to get killed and Valerie Harper saves him I believe so and doesn't he get he gets that's when he gets injured because I actually have in my notes here I have the words writ I have the forest because there's the the movie The Forest where the guy hurts his leg and he has a yeah. cane. So so it's like so it's like in the second half of the chase, like Gerald McCraney has like a cane, uh, like a stick that he's pulling himself along with as the rest of the family is running. And there's the trap. Oh, that's right, there's the trap. Yeah, just a lot of stuff happens. So yeah, so Barry Corbin ends up being the killer with his son, and we let's not overdo it because we're starting to mix up scenes because that's how haphazard this film is put together. And so, uh, but it's fun. Yes. So it's like, like I said, it's one of those movies where you just sit back and let them do the driving. Whatever happens, happens. Just enjoy it for what it is. It's got fun dialogue. The characters are great. Um, and it's super fast paced. It's one of the fastest paced TV movies I can think of seeing in recent memory. So um, that's what it is. It's it's nuttier than a fruitcake. <laughs> yeah. And it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And Dollar Harper is the anchor that kind of keeps it going, which Joe McCraney sort of helping her out there um, as like the serious sort of every person characters. Everybody else is almost a caricature of something. So um, anyway, yes, it's really good. And I'm glad we all enjoyed it. Um, I had no idea that Nate had never seen this before. I thought this would have been right up Nate's alley. Oh, definitely. It is. And I'm glad that I did get to see it. Well, how did it elude you for so long? You know what? It's funny because of what Dan said, because when I heard, you know, people across the lake, I think I just got it in my head. It was a different kind of movie. And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in it. It's just if I had known it was more slasher, uh, had like more slasher leanings, I would have watched it a lot sooner, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll forgive you this time, Nate. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, and, and you picked it, and now I got to enjoy Valerie Harper and her axe-throwing goodness. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. so proud of her axe-throwing goodness. I think that was the tagline, wasn't it? Valerie Harper and her axe-throwing goodness, Sunday <laughs> well, night. The, the, yes. the, the European theatrical cut, yes, that was it. it the thing I love about it is it's very slasher-esque, but goes off on these weird tangents. But then the last, like, 20 minutes... It doesn't quite become a giallo, but it almost like, like I said, it almost steps up and says, here's what's happening. And that's one of the things I really loved about it was that it it doesn't require, it, it didn't ask the characters who were trying to figure out what the mystery uh, resolution was. They don't have to worry about it because the movie presented it to us. So we know. 
and then we yeah. can go from there. So I, I, that was one of the things I thought, like we said, every seven minutes, uh, it, it was, it's, it's quite a joy. So yeah, I, I recommend this one highly. Okay, so let me tell you that it ran on NBC on October 3rd, 1988. So this was a Halloween treat for everybody. Uh, on CBS, was it ran against on CBS, Unholy Matrimony, which was a TV movie with Patrick Duffy and Charles Durning, which was written by the guy who wrote Corhaven Farm. It's not one I've seen. Um, on ABC, there were two news documentaries. Um, so there was a football game on that night, and then after the football game was something called America Hurts, the Drug Epidemic, and Burning Questions, America's Kids, hosted by Barbara Walters. People across the like, unlike Night Terror, did really well in the ratings. It came in number 12 for the week with a 17.3. It was seen in 15.6 million homes, which is not a lot of numbers by 70 standards, but by 80 standards, that's obviously really good. Um, the shoot lasted for about a month, which to me sounds fairly luxurious for a telefilm. Um, I don't know about late 80s, but we, we've talked about production histories in um, the older films, and they're, they're very short, so they got some time to make this one. They shot it in Vancouver. Um, the director was Alan Arthur Seidelman. He had just recently directed Valerie Harper in Strange Voices um, that year. I, th I think they both aired that year. Oh, yeah, they did. I'm sorry. Strange Voices aired in May, which was just a few months prior to People Across the Lake's airing. Um, in an interview to promote People Across the Lake, uh, Seidelman said... I'm committed to it's not being slasher number two. We make it a real thriller rather than one of those exploitation horror things. I think it's fun. I've never killed anybody on camera, of course. Um, I've had a lot of motivation recently. Actually, I'm not the murderer. It's a self-defense thing, she said, trying not to give away too much of the storyline. Oh, I guess that goes into Valley Harper. That's a weird segue. Um, I feel we got some good scenes. Yeah, that's a weird. I just pulled a paragraph and I'm like, great, who yeah. said what? Huh? Um, they don't even have the end of the quote there. <laughs> they don't even have the end of the quote there. But I think it's funny that he said that he's not making a slasher number two because it's a slasher, first of all, and it is an exploitation movie. That's why I think maybe Daylene Young wrote it with her tongue in her cheek and yeah. Alan Arthur Seidelman didn't understand that. You know what other movie makes me think of? Do you remember that movie Crawl Space with Klaus Kinski? Like, yeah. like that script seems funny, but mm -hmm. the direction doesn't. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I kind yes. of feel like it's one of those, yeah, it's like, like doesn't know exactly what it's doing. Um, like I said, this was a comeback of sorts for Harper. So here's an article I pulled from the Orange County Register about the her court case that was happening. Um, so they wrote, Valerie Harper resumes her acting career, which was brought to a screeching halt when she was dropped from Valerie last year as star of the NBC TV movie, The People Across the Lake. The murder mystery thriller is scheduled to complete a month-long shoot on July 20th, a week prior to the trial date of the lawsuit in which Harper is charging that NBC conspired with Laura Mark Telepictures and Valerie producers Tom Miller and Robert Boyette to have her terminated from the sitcom. The actress, who was first approached about People Across the Lake just two weeks ago and came to terms on the project just one within just one week, said she's pleased and grateful that NBC is exhibiting this sort of fairness now. That's her quote. She feels that the assignment, quote, will serve as a message to the industry that I am hireable. After my firing from Valerie, there was a, all that print that I had been jealous of my young co-star, Jason Bateman, that I had been vitriolic and difficult and things like that. I spent a year in a lot of pain and in a lot of depositions filled with worry about how much damage to my career this had done. But now NBC is making the statement with the TV movie that we trust her and any negative perceptions can go up in smoke. If you guys remember, she was unceremoniously fired from Valerie and then it became the Hogan family. So she eventually ended up dropping NBC from the lawsuit and ended up only suing Lorimar. She settled out of court for over a million dollars and 12.5% of the profits for when it went into syndication, which they estimated would take might come up to something like $15 million for her in the long run. I'm not really sure how much she got, though. Um, I'm being... 
offered the part in Lake um, early in the court court I'm sorry, early on in the court battle, Harper said, "Quote: The movie was not just a bone they were throwing me; it was a top-notch piece of material, and it lifted a dark shadow over our heads. We knew we weren't going to be pariahs in this business. So this was a really important film for her. Actually, part of her termination uh, meant that her." Her contract with the network uh, to make TV movies was also terminated, so she that was part of the compensation was to bring her back and make some movies with her. Um, as I said earlier, Daylene Young wrote the screenplay. Uh, she was a noted telephone writer. I guess I know her best for Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, which was her first writing credit. Of course, she also did Dead Man's Curve. She did a great movie called Why Me with Glennis O'Connor, which is a true story about a woman who was in a really horrifying car accident and had her face mutilated. And it's the true story of the plastic surgery that kind of reconstructed her face. It's really, really good. Um, uh, she also wrote Can You Hear the Laughter, the Freddie Prince story. But I guess she's probably most famous to everybody for writing the theatrical film Little Darlings. Um, so she was really adept at young female oh, wow. characters. Um, wow. Yeah. she Love And that. as I said, she, she yeah, it's a great movie. She really didn't tangle too much with thrillers or horror. I think this was her first um, credit in that genre and maybe her only one. And she was also a producer on this film. You'll notice at the end of the movie when they show that piece of driftwood flow. It says a Bill McCutcheon production, and I wasn't familiar with Bill McCutcheon, so I looked him up. So he was primarily a producer. Um, he does have a story credit here and a production credit on People, so he did both. He didn't write the screenplay, but he came up with the story. Um, his only other writing credit was um, for something called Murder in Paradise, which was directed by Fred Walton, who we know did April Fool's Day, the remake of I Saw What You Did, and of course, When a Stranger, When a Stranger Calls Back. So that's a TV movie of Fred's I haven't seen that I'm going to check out. And of course, Henry Link was played by Daryl Anderson, who I know best as Animal on Lou Grant um, and Tammy Lauren who plays a teenage daughter was a child actress who made a lot of TV movies she was in The Step for Children The Kid with the Broken Halo with Gary Coleman Crime of Innocence um, and I Saw What You Did both which co-starred Shawnee Smith and she was in a 1982 pilot for Little Darlings I'm not sure that ever got produced but it has an IMDb credit I didn't know they made a pilot to Little Darlings what? so um, there's a little yeah, wow. I know. I was surprised to see that. So there's a connection between her and Daily Young right there. Um, the reviews were not good at all. Tom Shales from the Washington Post hated it. He called Harper a quote-unquote mini-talent, which I was really offended by, and he was rather cruel about a lot of things, about not just her performance, but her physical appearance. He thought she was too skinny. He really was a really horrible review. Like, I, oh, I just wrote here, pretty abhorrent review. Um, but his headline said it was a hokey thriller, which I think that he should have just stuck with that instead of getting kind of personal with his feelings about Valerie Harper as a person, apparently. I really feel like the Valerie, when she was fired from that, really soiled her reputation, and I kind of feel like that moved over to the critics' opinions of her when she made this movie because it hadn't been settled yet, the court case. Lynn Hefley of the LA Times uh, said it was a thriller with unintended guffaws, uh, and she didn't care for it at all. Um, but this was a big week for TV movies, according to USA Today. Um, I'm just going to read what they wrote. On Monday, ABC's football game, usually the win um, in later time slots, and last week's face-off between the Dallas Cowboys and New Orleans tied at number eight. NBC's uh, The People Across the Lake and CBS's Unholy Matrimony, though, gave the game a run for its money to land at number 12 and number nine respectively so both tv movies did really well on the night they originally aired um against each other cbs's jesse which is another tv movie on tuesday was the week's highest rated um telefilm coming in at number six selling beating out nbc summer olympics review which came in at number 47 the abc's national league of championship playoff baseball games was number 15 
On Sunday, usually a big movie night, CBS's Liberace Behind the Music was number 14. Only CBS's 60 Minutes managed to get a higher rating that night. NBC's Going to the Chapel was number 21. Among other movies, CBS's Leap of Faith, which was up against the premiere of NBC's blockbuster Thursday sitcom uh, schedule, landed respectively at number 31. And NBC's Friday night movie, The Secret Life of Kathy McCormick, ranked at number 26, making it the highest rated program that night. And CBS's Streets of Dreams, uh, also on Friday, tied for number 40. So the the, so by 1988, just that week alone, I've named like eight TV movies. So they were still being produced in really high uh, quantity at this point, which is really nice to see. Um, so that's all my background for people across the lake. So we all enjoyed it. Yes. 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 Yay. It's crazy, crazy and wonderful. Yeah. Can you stay for the feedback, Nate? I'm afraid I can't. I wish I could, but okay. we're pushing 10, unfortunately. Okay, well, well, let's talk real briefly about what you're doing. So you're doing the Hysteria Continues, of course, but you mm-hmm. have, right before this, uh, or I guess right after this comes out, after I edited it, you and your cohorts had done the uh, commentary for The Hills of Ice Part 2, which is coming out in September, right? Yes, we did. We did, and we did a commentary for a really big slasher movie but it's not been announced so I can't ah, oh, we can't do that but killer well, whole, killer <laughs> well, the whole reason why i brought up the hills of ice part two was not to promote you guys but to tell you that <laughs> i also did the liner notes for that release so oh. we're on another release together oh sweet and, yeah and i'm really excited about that because i'm i'm actually like a pretty unabashed fan of uh the hills of ice part two so i was really excited when they asked me to uh, write the liner notes, and I'm really excited to hear your commentary. Whoever's making that noise, better stop. I'm sorry, that was me. I sent y'all a little message, but y'all can't tell anybody. Oh, oh I see it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so I will allow it because you gave us a spoiler on your commentary. Congratulations, I'm excited. It's so, awesome. Um, anyway. <laughs> from Nate they have so much content it's ridiculous I can't keep yes. up with it so yes. look for the stereo uh, continues on all of your podcatchers and also um, you guys have a Patreon that you guys uh, everybody listening should check out it's really great it's, um, I've been on there for ages yep and, do it and I, I will let you go Nate have a good night alright y'all have a good night too it was you, great you to finally check again yeah. <laughs> hopefully soon hopefully soon bye so on facebook from chris ellis he said i'm really stoked for this one i love both of these made for tv movies david assassino um on facebook as well said that's a bummer uh oh that we had to push it back but at least it gives me time to check out night terror i hear it's a super thriller i haven't heard back from him so i'm not sure he got to see it we ended up pushing this recording back like three times that's what he was referring to um michael brint said hi Destiny here. I love Night Terror and people across the lake. I was pretty young when Night Terror aired in the 1970s. My mom didn't let me stay up to watch the rest of the movie. So when I grew up and DVDs were around, I went looking for it. I could not remember the title or that Valerie Harper was in it. So I had to do some detective work online and I found it. I was thrilled. I was in heaven watching and I told my mom about it. So he's a big fan. Um, Stan Peel, who's a new listener. Yeah, Stan Peel, who's a new listener, said, can't wait. I've started watching People Across the Lake and need advice. How do you mentally convince yourself Joe McCready isn't Dabney Coleman? And by the way, he sent a longer piece of feedback that I'll read here in a minute. Um, (laughs) 
Jerry Ball wrote, oh, snap, I've been waiting for you guys to cover Night Terror since I started listening to the podcast. I'm anxious to hear your thoughts. Shane Bitterling said, my fave. Bill Jonkowski, our friend who wrote the book about Patty Duke, uh, and we've had on the show, said, I love both of these. I gave Valerie her copy of Night Terror on VHS, shown here in this photo from 2001. So he actually posted a photo of himself with Valerie Harper, which I'm so jealous. And he said she had no idea it had been released. Um, he's a big Valley Harper fan. Paul Freetag Fay said, neat. I love people across the lake, even though it's kind of a tonal mess. We agree. Uh, Larry Blomere said, I love Night Terror, and she's oh, wow. great in it. Melanie J. Allen said, I do love me some Gerald McCraney. And then on Twitter, we heard from Dan Gorman. He said, the people across the lake watched that one for the first time in October. Totally fit the bill for the season. Solid thriller. And then, um, and then we had an email again from Stan Peel who left a Facebook post. So he sent a couple emails because he watched these at different times. So I'm reading these out of order. I'm starting with Night Terror because that's the first one we discussed. And he wrote, Oh Lordy, I just watched Night Terror. So superior, so superior, so superior to the people across the lake. I mean, that was good, but this was virtually a one woman show. And- Valerie, Valerie was up so up to the task. I can see why you think so much of her. Her acting was spot on every step of the way. Her reactions to things from mundane to horrifying were always believable. From her stammering out instructions at the beginning to her trying to see out the windshield as she drives to the horror of seeing this guy kill the patrolman, then the drunk sales guy. In spite of that, she kept her cool believably and persevered. And I guess I didn't register as a kid how beautiful she is because I was a kid. But she is an intelligent and strong. Kudos to the writers for creating, at least for her her a solid intentional and believable uh, a solid intentional and believable moments as a person who can't stand having less than a quarter of a tank of gas anytime she was running low i was a basket case and when the killer showed up as the driver of the truck what a great moment i guess this is probably true of a lot of older movies but that seemed like a real study in old technology oh this seemed like a real study in old technology like i'm not sure a younger viewer would even get all this stuff they need the highway call box an adult woman not knowing how to use a gas pump a lot of tension was based on old technology which i thought was a really interesting thing that Stan pointed out there. Um, one final thing, kind of unrelated. You guys talked previously um, in a previous podcast about some great horror shorts they used to play on USA, like the guy making a giant mouse trap. There was another one. It was either a short or part of an anthology movie, but the gas station scene reminded me of it. A woman is driving and hears on the radio that there's an escaped convict. She rolls into the gas station on empty, and the guy working there is acting really strange. She's sure it's it's the escaped con. It's an old urban legend, but was rendered well. Maybe it's part of Creepshow. I just can't remember. So that was actually Nightmares. Do you remember that anthology movie? I do. I do. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's Emilio Estevez or Charlie Sheen is in one of the, the segments, the video segment. It's the Battle of Bishop. It's Emilio Estevez. Um, yeah. And uh, the segment he's talking about is the first one with Christina Raines and I think the guy who played Larry from Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. I think he's the gas station attendant. That was originally meant to be a TV movie, and then it became a theatrical. Yeah, it was was episodes of Dark Room, I think. I I feel like it's an offshoot of Dark Room. I need to watch Dark Dark Room again. Yeah, I think I read that it was it was tangentially somehow I think made for dark room, but was going to be something else. Then became a theatrical, but I don't know the whole history. It's kind of convoluted. Um, I looked it up at one point, but anyway, uh, Sam Peel goes on. The guy at the station, John Quaid, made me think of that. Seeing seeing seeming threatening at first, then the scene turns into something completely different. He was terrific, and I love that scene. Um, and then he wrote uh, about a people across the lake, which he actually watched first. He wrote, "What a terrific movie!" I have to admit, my wife called Barry Corbin early on using the quote unquote 
Castle Rationale, I'm sure it predates Castle, that's just what we call it, where the best known or best actor playing the supporting character must be the killer. I was holding out for Valerie Harper herself. Maybe I was influenced by Kate Jackson and Death Cruise. Harper seemed so overly paranoid that it was, and it wasn't really explained why. But I was so happy with the crazy psycho reveal. Corbin is such a good actor, and I feel like he was at his best here. What a terrific movie. I appreciated how um, the otherwise not helpful sheriff saved the day after the improbable return of the evil son. And what a great opening sequence. Really well done. And I'm not sure if my substandard copy of the movie was fooling me, but the night scenes looked beautiful. Not the low-budget filter day for night, but actual night shots with the water glistening on the lake. So well done. I look forward to hearing your review. You know, you could say that about both films, because, you know, obviously, Night Terror was originally called Night Drive. Um, Not originally. It was later called Night Drive. But, you know, obviously, with the title, it's all at night. And it... Even though you can't see a lot, um, you get the ambiance of the desert really well in that. They did a really good job of capturing mood in that film. And I do agree that People Across the Lake is shot really well. There's some really, really cool stuff in there. And that's our feedback. And we made it. So uh, yes. let me tell you what's happening in our next episode. I'm sort of lying. I'm not going to tell you. I'm gonna, All I'm going to tell you is it's a back-to-school episode because we have a guest, but we haven't lined up a date yet. And if the guests can't make it, I don't want to do these two movies without them because it's kind of he curated it. So all I'm going to tell you is this back to school and I'll make an announcement on social media about what it's <laughs> going to be. So just grab your backpacks and get your, you know, pencil holders and your binders and your peachy folders and meet us next month. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing, here's how you can do that. You can contact us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can go on Facebook and look up the Made for TV Mayhem show. You can go on Twitter and look uh, for at TV Mayhem podcast, or you can go on Instagram and find us at Made for TV Mayhem. You can also listen to all of our episodes on iTunes or I guess Apple Podcasts now and Stitcher. I find got us up on Stitcher. I'm having a hard time getting us up on Spotify, but I'm working on it. And so that's everything. Uh, just super briefly in like three sentences, tell me what you're doing, Dan, right now. My Henningverse book will be sent to the publisher in one month. Ooh. I have just posted the 75th episode of Eventually Super Train, which you are on. And I have started... The second season of Rockin' All Week with you, the Happy Days podcast covering wow. season two. And I'm also knee-deep in still the same sentence. That was in a, a parentheses. Okay. Still a, yeah, uh, uh, European Zombies, 1980. We are about 71 or two minutes into that. So we're almost at the end of that. So, boom, we're there. Awesome. Yeah, I can't remember... Where I left off with things that I've done, because I think the last time we talked might have been April or May. And so all I'll say is we already did the Hills Have Eyes Part 2. If you want to check that out, that's coming out on Blu-ray in September. Also in September is um, The Prey coming out through Arrow, which I did the Yay! commentary with you and Kent. For. That one's got all kinds of neat extras, and Ewan sent oh. me a little sample of one of the extras, and it's wonderful. That's going to be a really brilliant release. And um, also two TV movie announcements came out. I did the commentary for a TV movie called Death Dreams with um, Christopher Reeve and Mark Helgenberger. That's coming out in October through Kino Lorber, and also in October through Kino Lorber, Justin Kurzweil from The Series Continues and myself. We did a commentary for Nightmare in Badham County. 
which I'm wow. so excited about. Um, that was, the research for that was like the most fun research I've ever done for anything. Um, and it was really fun to do that with uh, Justin. That's also coming out through Canelober in October. That's what I remember now. Also, I guess I can announce that there is an article on um, NWR, which is by Nicholas Winning Ruffing. He has a website where you can watch movies for free. And you can read articles that are somehow connected to the movies. And I wrote about how soap operas um, connect to the TV movie and the horror genre. And um, you have to sign up to access the article, but everything on it's free. You just have to give them your email and create a password. And if you go on my social media, you can find a link to it. Um, it's kind of hard to find within the thing. But if you're into soap operas, I would recommend it. So anyway, we'll be back next month. Thank you so much uh, for sticking with us. I know it's been a little while. We've been busy. Mm. We're going to try really hard to stick on a better once a month schedule. And also, I'm hoping to have a trap cast not in August, but maybe in September. I'd like to do one. Um, it, they're hard for me to do, but um, but I, I'm really enjoying it. And actually, Stan, who sent us the, this um, feedback here, he gave me some really great, cool tidbits about Trapper John that I want to share. So I'm really excited to get back to it. So just keep an ear out and look for us on your social medias, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>